Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Oh. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. And today we're covering The Wolf of Wall Street, which is part of our Margot Robbie month. Hashtag Margot Robbie month, everyone. If you haven't seen The Wolf of Wall Street, we will be discussing it with spoilers in mind, so just be advised. It is a few years old, though. And, and Lloyd, did you watch it the first time around? Yeah, I watched it at the theatre. Yeah, nice. How was that? Yeah, it was excellent. Uh, really packed crowd. I didn't. I don't think they expected how much sexuality was in the film, like how much nudity and how extreme it was. But the, the crowd, uh, it really blew their minds. Um, I think a lot of young people are in there, especially. Well, they would be once you hear the subject matter and um, if you know who Margot Robbie is. They did this amazing thing when she came around. They really flogged this movie a lot. And Leonardo DiCaprio makes maybe a movie a year, so it's always a big event. I want to compare like how he acted uh, from, say, this one to The Revenant and whether or not you think this is a better performance. Um, for me, The Wolf of Wall Street's great because, you know, he's a real person, obviously Jordan Belfort, but as well you really get a sense of who he is. And maybe in The Revenant, even though he won the, the acting Oscar, he's just a man in these conditions. I don't know, I feel like I got to know Jordan more as a person. Maybe that was also the duration of the film. But what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I much prefer his performance in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street because you just get a greater um, sense of uh, like all the dynamics that Leonardo DiCaprio is capable of. Like the speeches alone that he had to execute as uh, um, Belfort is really remarkable. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. Like, he was so nervous during each of those and he had to really psych himself into doing it and it is very demanding. Like, it's just Martin Scorsese's wizardry that you just don't notice that a lot, I guess, because there's so many other cutaways. There's, so, there's like, really memorable shots of the crowd. But that's, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio de- delivering these really powerful speeches that you get a sense of how powerful this character was um, to his... um, It's probably more exaggerated in the movie than it was in real life, I'm sure, but you really really get that sense of his... um, uh, X plus sort of thing. Like, um, shout out to my friend Claire. She actually met the real life person, uh, Jordan Belfort, uh, in Sydney during a conference. And she said that there is something absolutely charismatic about him that he really dominates the room. It's that Bill Clinton effect, isn't it? People want to be near them and, uh, yeah, they they steal focus. Well, I mean, it's hard not to compare The Wolf of Wall Street to the film Wall Street with Gordon Gekko, uh, Michael Douglas, obviously. The whole greed is good mentality. The FBI agent, in fact, he's, he's a Boy Scout. He's described as a Boy Scout. He thinks your Gordon Gekko is also a line that gets thrown in the film. I didn't see Wall Street for years, and then when I did see it, I was like, okay, I get what all the fuss is about. 
And this is a bit of familiar territory, hey, Lloyd? Yeah, absolutely. Like, Oliver Stone still remains one of the towering authorities when it comes to movie making uh, and Wall Street, like the subject of Wall Street. His dad actually worked in Wall Street and Oliver Stone wanted to explore, like, the uh, economic structure of America. And Wall Street, which came out in 1987, created Gordon Gecko, which was incredibly played by Michael Douglas. And there is a very underrated sequel to Wall Street that came out in 2010 called Money Never Sleeps. Wall Street explores the economic facets of the institution and it's clear that Oliver Stone understands how that economy works very well, although it sure as hell goes over my head. And despite the famous greed is good speech in the movie, Wall Street is really a cautionary tale about the greed within the institution. And it's interesting, Michael Douglas said sometimes he gets stopped in the streets in New York and some people say to him, hey, you're Gordon Gecko. I grew up wanting to be you. Like he was so shocked because both he and Oliver Stone set out, like they set out to make a movie depicting how awful these people were like but there is something so seductive about this character his confidence his lifestyle people want that people want to be that and I think um, Jordan Belfort is going to be a huge influence on the next generation yeah and I mean when you get a because obviously Michael Douglas was a major actor in his day when you take you know the A-list of today that is Leonardo DiCaprio this is the kind of film when you add nudity, you get that male audience watching and people think, oh, cool, if I'm like Jordan Belfort in this case, uh, I will get to bang chicks like Margot Robbie in this case. Absolutely. You know, the, <laughs> and I'll have money and I'll have hookers and whatever, whatever. Is this not seen as a cautionary tale too? Because, I mean, he <laughs> he has to sort of work with the FBI. He has to kind of get off drugs and get clean. I don't know if people will focus on those elements. I don't think this is a cautionary tale. Like, it's a movie about greed and excess, and it makes an effort to go full speed in, like, that direction. Like, the film's whole narrative structure and the all-out performance of the actors and, the, you know, like, their long improvised scenes, the sound design, the camera moves, it's all in pursuit of that excess. And if the film shows drugs being taken, it goes into that style that of that hallucination. Like, uh, you know, where um, Jonah Hill starts taking those quaaludes and he starts uh, tripping about the shoes. And, you know, and it, if there's a sex in the scenes, it's really raw and fleshy. If Like, it's all about, oh, and if there's a celebration, the choreography seems so animalistic. Like, the film is all about greed. And Martin Scorsese and DiCaprio have been wanting to make this movie since Shutter Island, and they spent several years trying to bring it together, working exhaustively with that screenwriter, Terence Winter. And DiCaprio said in the um, the Blu-ray, like the documentary on the Blu-ray, I don't think that movies are necessarily there to tell a moral tale. They're there to depict people as um, authentically as possible. And I feel like um, Wolf of Wall Street is a point of view film and that is pursuing like the raw truth of Jordan Belfort's world. And by th doing that, it works on so many levels because my Myself and my brother Josh had the same reaction. I don't know if you had the same reaction, Dave, that these people are really horrible people. They're just awful people. Like, I wouldn't want to hang out with Jordan Belfort, but that said, there is something so seductive about their lifestyle. It's so crazy. I would love to do that for a day. Like, um, I remember going to see Mike Tyson in Sydney 
and he talks about his life and he said there was a real low point in his life where all he did was take drugs and sleep with prostitutes. And I remember so clearly him saying, it was fun, man. It was so fun. Like there's Sonic in the Western world that really um, holds that image of cocaine and escorts as like the highest form of excess. <laughs> and I guess until you've done it, you don't know. Exactly. <laughs> when um, when this film first came around, I didn't see it at the theatre like you. Uh, I didn't see it for a while and didn't see it till it was on DVD. And that's probably why we didn't cover it in the podcast sooner, because we did have Pod Me If You Can going at the time. I don't but, think we've um, ever covered a Martin Scorsese film on Pod Me If You Can, have we? Uh, Hugo. Oh, Hugo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, don't forget about Hugo. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, the thing was, um, enough time had passed that I thought, oh, people won't listen to it. But then when Margot Robbie month comes along, I thought to myself, of course, let's try and get Wolf of Wall Street in there, even if it's just at the end of the month, uh, to wrap things up because it's really the film that launched her career. But the first time around, I really enjoyed it. I found I was transfixed by these characters, Jonah Hill, especially so many scenes were stolen by him and his teeth. <laughs> um, and just, yeah, just the casual nature of him talking about how he may or may not be with his cousin. Uh, you know, so, I'll just yeah. let him run free if he wasn't, you know, born right. <laughs> when he talks about yeah. his kid was disabled. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. <laughs> but, like, he was an Academy Award nominee for this, and I think deservedly so. I'm not sure Jonah Hill will ever reach this height again. We'll have to see. He got it for Moneyball uh, and Wolf of Wall Street? I think so, yeah. Wow, that's really impressive. Um, if not, I could be wrong. I apologise. Definitely Moneyball, uh, but that was sort of a peak there for him. Uh, one rolled into the other. But the thing that I most remembered from watching it the first time around was, I mean, first off, it didn't seem as long because it did seem much longer to watch this a second time. I don't know why that was. Uh, but the sequence where DiCaprio is on Quaaludes and tries to get in his car. That's actually um, the cinematographer um, that Scorsese employed in this movie is a Mexican cinematographer, and I swear they're going through a renaissance, Dave. Like, how many times have they won the Academy Award for cinematography or the director? You know, well, yeah, they're, they're going great. Um, he, uh, it's His name is Rodrigo Preto, who also shot Alexander, Brokeback Mountain, Argo, and he also shot, funny enough, Wall Street 2. Scorsese says his favourite shot is that single take where Jordan Belford, after taking those quaaludes, is reduced to crawling and he can only open the car door with his foot. There's actually no cut once he opens the door with his foot and you see him like in the car on the phone, like trying to yell. Um, that's all in one shot. And I actually think... Scorsese is at his best when he goes back to that really raw craft, what he learnt from his mentor, um, John Cassavetes, who was his, he trained him when he was really young, um, where the, there are those shots in through the doorways, like they're almost handheld, and we see a real critical, dramatic scene. And in Wolf of Wall Street in particular, it's that scene you mentioned where it's all in that single take. And of course, the really horrible scene where Jordan Belfort actually punches Margot Robbie, Naomi in the stomach, and then he goes after his daughter and tries to take her away. It's so raw and ugly, maybe even funny, but you can't look away. It's Scorsese at his most raw and powerful. Well, that, that one sequence, especially when it's punctuated with um, after he's driven home as slowly as he thinks... <laughs> The fact that his car is actually wrecked. Like, <laughs> I burst out laughing the first and the second time. And we've mentioned that, like, in a joking way, how great that scene was. 
you know, in my house. Like, uh, my wife and I both vividly remembered that sequence. And, I mean, there's a lot of power in that, it being memorable. So what, what did you remember most from the first viewing? Uh, well, just the speed of how this film is told. Like, everyone go... Uh, I heard some one reviewer say it's like the last 20 minutes of Goodfellas, but for three hours. Because huh. Goodfellas just builds up this tremendous space. I argue he did that really well in Goodfellas itself, like, throughout the whole film, and especially in Casino. Like, Scorsese's really got that down, that that voiceover, um, and you're, in, you're locked into this point-of-view, like, film, and the whole film like breaks in like there's wonderful dolly shots and um uh, crazy crane shots that look so wild but it's so internal like you just believe everything about it and like the time just melted away for me like i'm just like wow that was three hours unbelievable you know i heard um uh martin scorsese's next film that's coming out i think it's a religious film i'm I'm not i'm not silence silence yeah um i heard that goes on for three hours but and people are like oh is that too long but i'm like just like how we discussed with quentin tarantino and uh, Django unchained it doesn't really matter about the length as long as it's extremely well told and you're just lost in that that time but um i think wolf of wall street is an incredibly impressive film. It's actually one of the best films I've seen in in the in the decade. You know, I've seen a lot of good films, but just something about Scorsese's craftsmanship—you'll never see in any other film the, the way he moves the camera. Like there's, uh, you know, decades and decades of film knowledge. Like the, probably the greatest film knowledge embedded into every single frame of his movie. So whenever he comes out with a big Hollywood production film, to me it's like a big event. Like I have to see this at the cinema because I just want to see how Scorsese's going to tell the story. How is he going to move the camera? It's like a big lesson and it's an experience. Yeah, that's right. I mean, especially with the big directors. I mean, you give them that leeway. I mean, you'll watch a Tarantino film for three hours because you're not going to get another one for two years. <laughs> and, um, you know, you sort of forgive because you want to live in their little world they've created for as long as you can. And I felt that way about this Scorsese film as well. I, I think this is, uh, like, Scorsese's funniest movie as well to date. Like, uh, just looking back at his filmography, uh, I've never laughed so hard in any of his movies. I'm not saying he's not funny, but this is, like almost like a comedy like it's a serious drama but it's so funny and he employs like a lot of improvisation throughout this whole movie like the famous scene where Matthew McConaughey is beating his chest actually came uh, from <laughs> 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 um uh, funny story about that we actually all started doing that at a club and the DJ started doing that with us oh gosh like I'm looking <laughs> back at it now so cringeworthy but at the time the film came out we're all you know getting into it but um lucky you'd all seen the film <laughs> otherwise that would have seemed like nonsense <laughs> I think well, even the, some of the people who joined in hadn't, hadn't seen the film but they got into it you know <laughs> um, Matthew McConaughey actually said um uh, like how that came about, Le- uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was like, "Oh, what are you doing?" Because he's doing that like um, to, uh, as a warm up, and he goes, "Oh, I just do this to warm up to get ready." And Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese said, um, "That's great. Can you use it on the next take?" And it's so it's all incorporated into that scene from improvisation. And I know a lot of people bring up Judd Apatow when reviewing this movie, but Scorsese has actually been doing this technique for a very long time. As I mentioned. He was ment- mentored by John Cassavetes, who's all about shooting as raw as possible and having the actors improvise the scene. And I can name many examples of this throughout Martin Scorsese's work, but the most famous one is from Goodfellas, where Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta are at a dinner table and Ray Liotta says, you're a funny guy. And Joe Pesci's like jabbing at him going, what am I, a clown funny? Do I amuse you? Do you remember that How scene? How am I funny? 
<laughs> yeah, how am I funny? Um, that was all improvised and they came up with it in rehearsals and worked it in the script. But I do think in this movie they actually had on-camera improv and I, uh, specifically the scenes with Jonah Hill and Rob Reiner. I just got a feeling that, that was a lot of that was on-camera. I love the framing actually when they had that one shot of um, DiCaprio, Rob Reiner and uh, John Favreau. And, you know, two of them are great directors. Rob Reiner and John Favreau have made a lot of films. Yeah. And I was looking at it going, I wonder if DiCaprio starts directing, if this will become an image that, that yeah. you know. It just, for me, felt like, hey, if you wanted to, you could come direct. You know, they were sort of, you know, I don't know, it was strange, the sort of surrealness to that image. Oh, John Favreau and the special features was like saying that it was so remarkable seeing Scorsese and Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio work because they've done so many films together. They got such a great shorthand. Yeah. Like when talking to each other, he goes, that was so impressive. And he goes, it's such an honour to be with Martin Scorsese. And Martin Scorsese could just go, hey, um, could, do you want to come here and make the film? Everyone will drop what they're doing in a heartbeat and work with Martin Scorsese. He's just such a legend, you know. <laughs> I get the feeling McConaughey was busy because for me, the thing that also stood out from the first viewing, and I was able to confirm this the second time around for this, is that, I mean, he has that one scene cameo, basically, He's there at the beginning, he's got a little bit in the office, but that one scene where he's talking to him, setting him on his path at that lunch, why wouldn't you have him back and pay off that character in some form, you know, later in the film? Yeah. You know, if the, or if this either is a say cautionary... he died. He, uh, I don't know, but it's all based on reality, actuality. So. Well, I mean, if you read the IMDb trivia, they say that his character actually bought some, some of the stock of uh, Stratton Oakmont and worked with him for several years later on, but that was never covered in the film. Um, if it is a cautionary tale, you know, you want to see that McConaughey character on the way down, like if he comes to him and begs him for a job, or, you know, if he's better or worse off later, you want to sort of have that checkpoint on the road, you know, because Jordan is essentially becoming the character that McConaughey was. Yeah. Especially when he's beating his chest in front of all of his staff. And, yeah, you, you know. see the influence. Like, he was almost like, uh, although we see Rob Reiner as his father, the only father figure really for Jordan Belford was Matthew McConaughey, in a sense. I mean, I find it interesting. Rob Reiner sort of disappears a bit more towards the end of the film, never really giving him too much advice. There was that bit about marriage and, like, sleeping with women and pubic hair. But um, <laughs> for me, this was so off-brand for Rob Reiner he must have loved doing it, you know, because you sort of know him as the the good, you know, and friend and romantic comedy and like so much screaming and swearing. He would have loved it. <laughs> Who, what, what's a movie they're watching? What's a TV show they're watching and somebody phones up to interrupt him? Was it The Enforcer? I think it was. The Enforcer? Who the hell got And he has an English accent when he picks up the phone. Oh my gosh, that was fantastic. You know, when they first become uh, Stratton Oakmont and uh, DiCaprio's doing that phone call trying to sell shares and he's doing the, like, lubing up and, like, he's going to air fuck this yeah, guy? Yeah. There was way too much chuckling from everyone for me. I didn't notice it the first time around, but it felt like a prank phone call. But there was a few things the second time around that, that were totally different. One thing I want to highlight is just the girl who gets her head shaved for $10,000 uh, that allegedly is going towards the breast implants. The look on her face, I didn't pick up on it the first time around. 
She looks pretty horrified. Yeah, no, it, it becomes tragic as the camera punches in closer to her facial yeah. expressions. Like, yeah, and that scene is so animalistic, like what's going on there. Jordan Belfort delivers this crazy speech and everyone's screaming and roaring and this girl's getting a head shaved. And then before you know it, in the blink of an eye, uh, like all these dancers come in, like a, a naked, half-naked band comes in, strippers come in, escorts come in, waiters come in. Like I, I'm really curious to find to know what uh, Martin Scorsese drew from because he's got such a religious background. I'm sure he drew from some religious imagery that depicts greed. Like it, it kind of reminded me like pagan Rome, maybe Caligula, like he was going for like. It just seems so crazy. Like the frame was just so dense, packed full of all kinds of excess going on in the screen. And especially, you know, that scene where they go to um, Las Vegas just before he gets married for his bachelor party and they're on the plane having, you know, you know, sex, having taking drugs, and it's just so crazy. And then you got that top shot, like that crane above shot, where um, Jordan Belfort walks towards the window in his hotel, and there's like naked bodies all around him, and like the last naked girl that's sleeping, he just has to grab her breast as he's walking over the window. It's just like so excessive, like it's just a, such a crazy lifestyle. But that girl with the shaved head, I mean, that really stood out as like torture. And just sort of crossed a line. And it was the way Scorsese punched in and stayed with her a little bit longer than he should have. And just the look on her face, the sort of nervousness. Yeah, no, I didn't pick up on that the first time around. Because the first time around, I think you're too in shock uh, to think about it. You know, when they're doing all the dwarf throwing and things like that, it's all shocking. But you don't sort of... You go with it because it's become the kind of film that you're watching, I suppose. I like that scene where he's shooting the infomercial and, like, he's going on... Like, obviously, this is just another part of his life where he's making a living of um uh you know off these infomercials and in that same Im- uh, infomercial or video grain like as if it's shot in video he gets arrested like that that was just like breaking the third wall for me that was just absolutely brilliant mm. fourth wall sorry that, that was great yeah we should probably talk about Margot Robbie who is the focus of this month an Australian actress obviously who plays his second wife she plays a woman in this film that when she's introduced, one character says, I would fuck her if she was my sister. <laughs> and then another one says, I would let her give me AIDS. <laughs> and, then, and then Jonah Hill's character openly masturbates <laughs> in that scene to her. That was so shocking. But this is like amazing marketing for her as an actress. Because if they said all this stuff about her as an actress, which a lot of people can't sort of tell the difference, but uh, she's of course very beautiful if enough people tell you that something is great, this is just really good marketing. The marketing Not only is right that, on. it's delivered by great, great quality actors directed by one of the greatest directors ever, shot by the most top-of-the-line DOP you could ask for. So it's the perfect vehicle that really um, advertises the beauty of Margot Robbie. I think if you had, like, no offence to Margot Robbie, but a- a- anyone that's very pretty in that role, it would have had the same effect because you had all those ingredients set up to build up such an advertisement of beauty, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, when an A-list actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, I mean, when he's he's pictured constantly with Giselle and models and stuff, and he is like a brand of person who's selling us, you know, watches and cars and whatever, you know, he is selling us. He's selling us Margot Robbie. And this is like when they sell us the film... 
they're selling this Margot Robbie as well. And of course, the whole world bought in, you know, and she's got an A-list career now, more recently with Harlequin uh, solidifying it. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely Wolf of Wall Street that really engineered the the Margot Robbie, I don't want to say era, but really um, engineered the Margot Robbie star, this very beautiful blonde-haired woman that guys will just fawn over and, you know, um, do what Jonah Hill was doing <laughs> in the movie. And in particular, when you do actually see Margot Robbie nude, I don't know if she was nude prior to this film, I don't think she was, but that scene where she opens the door, and again, this is shot by one of the best DOPs in the world and directed by one of the greatest directors ever. And you see um, Margot Robbie fully naked opening up the door. That's like the biggest advertisement for a beauty. I don't know how much further you can get in that. And then um, he obviously has sex with her right then and there. And then <laughs> like, I like the voiceover because it was so amazing for 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, when you choose to do nudity in a film like this, Obviously, this is a great film to do that for because it's going to be and seen by good people. Hands. Exactly. I was going to say a lot of people probably do nudity in like a horror film that goes straight to DVD and nobody sees it. And then your effort isn't wasted. I mean, you've got a paycheck for it and that movie exists and, you know, people can video on demand it or whatever. But in this instance, uh, this is, you know, like you say, well shot, well directed for the film Apparently Scorsese offered her a robe, like said she didn't have to be nude in that scene, and she insisted um, because it's on IMDb, but it's about her trade in the world is, you know, her body and her beauty, and that's how she sells herself pretty much to um, DiCaprio's character. Jordan. Harley Quinn, I definitely think, will be the one most people will remember her for, but Wolf of Wall Street is definitely the engine that, you know, brought her to stardom. I think like we can, we talked heavily about Pan Am in our podcast last week. Um, and we talked heavily about, uh, uh obviously Harley Quinn, um, in Suicide Squad, but, um, you know, Wolf of Wall Street is definitely the one that put her on the, uh, on the face of the planet, like put her on big notice, definitely put her on the map for sure. And there's that great sequence where there's a montage of, you know, showing them become a blissful married couple with wedding and presents and happiness. And uh, it's all broken by this amazing jump cut with this glass of water <laughs> to the face. Who is Venice? And he's like, huh? Who? And she goes, who? Who? What are you, a fucking owl? <laughs> That's actually a line from Heat. Who? 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 Were you a fucking owl? And then they skim over the fact that they had a child there, and fatherhood has happened, Skylar, um, and she's pregnant again later in the film. That's not the focus of the movie, which is great. Even having, like, this background stuff uh, makes it all so much more three-dimensional. But she does this very kind of Jersey voice, which is what I found she slipped into sometimes when she was um, Harlequin, when she was the doctor, and she was saying, what are you, you going to do to me, Mr. J, you know? Maybe that's her kind of default American accent. Um, I'm not sure, but maybe one to watch just with Margot, uh, whether or not she has that range. I guess in Pan Am, she sort of did. I didn't get a Jersey accent then. So fair enough. Dismiss my comment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the FBI stuff. I mean, that's the the good versus evil story of the film. And there's a wonderful shot, um, like he's on the train. And he's looking at um, life around him and he has that brief blurb. Or no, it's actually a head storyline in the newspaper about the arrest of Jordan Belfort. But he has to put the paper down and look at his life. Just how 
Um, it's sort of like a stab at the average working stiff, just how it's just not so glamorous, you know? It's kind of sad in a way, very tragic. I mean, maybe people will see it as inspiring and, you know, without necessarily going to the lengths that Jordan does, uh, maybe try and turn their own lives around. I thought that speech where he's going to step down, but the new drug that he's really addicted to is power, and he's only powerful as this persona of the Wolf of Wall Street, and during the speech he convinces himself to stay, was an amazing sort of thing. That was really good acting by Leo. And I like how, you know, he's against the law in that kind of catch-me-if-you-can way that Leo must like these kind of outlaw types that enjoy the high life, you know. There's probably something there in his um, mentalities and, you know, something to escaping where you came from. I love the scene where he smokes crack with Joni Hill for the first time. Yeah. He goes, smoke crack with me, bro. He goes, oh, all right, just one hit, just one hit. And he takes it all in and then he breathes it in a little. He goes, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was, like, I really enjoyed Joni Hill in this. And I think, you know, maybe it's the, the, uh, the performance I've enjoyed most of Joni Hill. You know when he, Joni Hill, um, he, he's such a despicable character. Like, you really can't understand why Jordan Belfort has him around because he really screws up so many things. Like, that whole where he's supposed to give the money to that Walking Dead dude. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. just so horrible. And he doesn't tell Jordan Belfort. Instead, he gives these um, quaaludes that take ages to come in. And then he's on the phone with, um, with uh, the guy from Switzerland about the bank account. And uh, he's trying to scream and get off the phone. And then he starts eating meat and then he's choking on the meat. And then yeah. <laughs> and Leonardo um, DiCaprio, oh, sorry, Jordan, Jordan Belfort, looks at Popeye and sees Popeye eating spinach. So he reaches in a drawer, finds some <laughs> hidden cocaine, takes it, which evens out the effects, I guess, or gives him that small burst of energy. And he starts, he runs over and starts hitting his chest. The meat hits him in the face. And then he starts beating his chest. Like a like a like a tough guy, like oh, <laughs> crazy! That was that had me in stitches. Yeah, it, it's probably Scorsese's fa- um, funniest film. You're right. I mean, Goodfellas has its moments, and you know you laugh where he sets up a lot of jokes and things. But this was pretty constant, like black comedy type jokes. He really has a death wish at times, and I found there were there were three scenes for Jordan's character that DiCaprio, I think, just three moments that stood out most for me. And one was when Naomi's having sex with him and she says it's for the last time and she wants a divorce. And like you said, uh, the way Scorsese handled this sequence where Jordan punches Naomi in the stomach and steals their daughter. You know, it was such a raw scene. Uh, Jordan is wearing a wire for the FBI and he holds up that note, or he shows the note to Jonah Hill's character that just says, don't incriminate yourself, I'm wearing a wire. It's such a sweet gesture to his friend, because like, he didn't have to kind of imply that at all, you know. but it shows that there's still, between the two of them, you know, he's fallen and he, he, he is working with the FBI, but he's still trying to help his friend and not... Yeah, it's, I sort of found that very sweet... But the other one, the sweetest moment of all I found was when he talked about the single mother working in the office. Yes, yes. And how he, ga- he gave her the 25K. It was just such a gentle sort of sweet story. There's a... In um, Spin City with Michael J. Fox, in the final episode he's in, before Charlie Sheen took over the show and I stopped watching, 
unrelated. There's a, sequ- a scene where Michael J. Fox tells the story of uh, Jimmy, one of the other guys who works there, and how when he walked in, you know, how, when he hired him and stuff, and it's a really sweet kind of story, and he says, I've got a story like that for each and every one of you, you know, where he believed in them and he gave them the job or, or whatever the case was when their relationship started. And I got the feeling on that Wolf of Wall Street sequence, that 25K story, that for each of the people in that room, there was a time where Jordan met them and had faith in them and maybe made an investment in their life in the way that he gave her money to, you know, in advance. And I found it in that sequence, especially with her response, her emotional response to him talking, that was one of the sweetest moments of the film. I don't know if you... Yeah, it was so truthful and believable, mainly because of obviously how they how these incredible actors performed that scene. But these are really awful people, yet Scorsese gives you those dimensions that you really go, oh, you know, you really see them as a human being, you know, which is really interesting. That's why I can't say that this is really a cautionary tale and I don't agree with a lot of critics that say this is a movie that celebrates the villain because I don't think it does because, again, we, um, myself and my brother, I'm not sure if you had the same reaction, Dave, we did find these people really awful but we're seeing them through the prism of, of humanity. Like, we do see a human side to them as well. Yeah, it's rags to riches too, so... Did you dislike all of them? To be honest, I found his immediate kind of posse uh, to be just kind of like a bunch of jokers. Especially when they're being interrogated and they're like, you going to eat that cookie? And, oh, you know, I don't recall and stuff. That was just funny kind of... What about the guy who um, uh, who had, the? I guess, their... Um, cleaner or their servant um while they were away he tried to have a a gay orgy and um then they're interrogating him about where is the money like they didn't care about the money but it's just the idea of a person stealing your money is really awful (laughs) which is funny because what they do for a living um and then they punch him in the face and then they're holding him over the um the edge of their uh uh, of the building that just goes so back to Scorsese's roots in his gangster genre. Yeah. Like, it just reminded me so much of all the gangster films you've seen him. Yeah, and there's that guy who uh, goes to prison for them and then when he comes out, they're on the yacht and there's that throwaway voiceover line that says, yeah, he died of a heart attack. Well, yeah, that, it gets dark in some, like, really dark in some eras, like how the that whole voiceover about the excess of sex, like um, like he had to st- put signs up, no sex in the public restroom, and people, like there's these guys, a couple going at it, and people are just like checking the mirror, go, you go into the toilets as per normal as if they're not there because it happens all the time. And then he goes on about, oh, there's this girl, like an intern, that um, she had, she gave ama- uh, an amazing um, oral, uh, gave amazing oral sex. To everybody in the office, yeah. To everybody in the office, and then one of the guys married her, and then he he goes, oh yeah, but he committed suicide a couple of years later. And then Jordan Belfort doesn't have any emotional reaction to that, like in his words, how he says it. And the whole film just goes, oh yeah, he died, you know, and then just moves along. Yeah. But it's such a powerful little story. You're just like, hold on, what? You know, it just, uh, just adds to how demented and strange this world is, how detached they are from humanity. There's so much in this film that I feel like whole stories could have been independent films. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whole little minute chapters like that, you know. It just goes to the quality and how much r- r- the wealth of richness that's in, in this story in itself. Like the, every character in it just has a wealth of background. And obviously it's a true story. So all of this happened to some degree, probably not to the way that it's glorified in this film. I mean, I'm 
guessing they did take a ton of different drugs and I'm guessing they did, uh, you know, these illegal activities that wound up putting Jordan Belford in jail. The reason why they were able to get momentum to fund a movie like Wolf of Wall Street is because of the global financial crisis and everyone became curious about Wall Street, what went wrong and everything like that. But I don't know, I can see a lot of young kids watching this movie going, I want to be Jordan Belford. You know, and, and like what um, Oliver Stone and Michael Douglas were shocked about when they made Wall Street, that so many people wanted to be Gordon Gecko, and Gordon Gecko has become part of our common language as a reference to somebody who's in complete power in Wall Street and, and everything like that. I do think uh, this movie is going to be like a poster child for the next generation of uh, Jordan Belfort's. And so simple is the message at the end where he says, sell me this pen. You yeah, know, I really enjoyed the scene where they were doing the sell me this pen and he goes, hey, write your name down for me. Uh, I can't. <laughs> I Why can't not? Don't have a pen. Supply and demand. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so simple. The sell me this pen at the end, you know, where he does the seminars, he's still teaching his ways and, you know, there are still, as you say, there are people who want to be Jordan Belford out there. In terms of Margot Robbie, of course, this launches her as a household name, you know, puts her in the spotlight in the States. We reviewed some of her earlier performances on things. And, I mean, she was on Neighbours for 300-odd episodes and she was nominated for the Gold Logie, which, to international viewers, the Gold Logie is the uh, most popular personality on television. So it's not as if Margot Robbie was unknown in Australia. Uh, she just hadn't had that US launch pad. And I think you described her really well last week, I think it was, where you referred to her as, like, a female Chris Hemsworth, like yeah. the type of, uh, you know, female Aussie beach girl, I suppose, that we're selling to the rest of the world. Yeah, she embodies that ideal of the beautiful blonde-haired beach um, girl, like exactly like Chris Hemsworth. Like I'm picturing a lot of girls going, wow, Australians must all look like that. <laughs> no, no, we don't. But we do have a lot like that are as beautiful as Chris Hemsworth and as Margot Robbie, you know, like they do exemplify that that um, Australian ideal, I guess. Yeah, we're hugely multicultural for international listeners. For me, this ends Margot Robbie month. Um but I think it's been a lot of fun, Lloyd. Pretty much we've covered a lot of a range of her different films. Were there any films that we didn't cover for Margot Robbie uh, that you wanted to mention at all? Or uh, Yeah, I guess uh, you saw Focus uh, with her and Will Smith. Did you like that? Uh, I did or? not like it much. And that's a large reason, reason why we didn't talk about it on this uh, month. I thought I'd probably be way too negative. For me, Focus was was all wrong in pacing and... Not a great vehicle for either Margot Robbie or Will Smith. And probably the best thing that came out of it was that they worked together and then that led to them working together on Suicide Squad, uh, which wasn't a perfect film, but was far better than Focus. I didn't enjoy it, and mostly because I didn't enjoy the kind of cons they were doing and the way the plot was nonsensical at times. Uh, I won't get too far into it, but uh, did you see The Big Short? Uh, yeah, I saw the big short. She, like, obviously, Margot Robbie plays Margot Robbie in it. And um, I think we talked a lot about the big short in our um, Spotlight uh, podcast. Yeah. But I, I wasn't a big fan of the movie. It was a very daring film in terms of the subject matter um, it delved into. 
uh, and how it tried to tell it. Like it's uh, w- both uh, what Wolf of Wall Street dealt dealt with and what um, uh, The Big Short dealt with are very complicated subjects. Like try to explain how Wall Street works. It's very, very complicated. And even Jordan Belfort in the movie Wolf of Wall Street just goes, oh, you probably don't get what I'm saying, but it's bad. You know, <laughs> he just puts it down into layman terms. But Margot Robbie, um, obviously they exploit how beautiful Margot Robbie is for her brief appearance in uh, The Big Short. Yeah, put her in a bathtub with bubbles. The thing about The Big Short just quickly was that if you've seen the trailer, you've pretty much seen the film and you know that everything's going to collapse and there's going to be a housing crisis, uh, you know, that everything's going to fail. You're literally waiting for that to happen the whole movie, uh, which was what I didn't enjoy about it just because I was like, come on, let's have that happen and... And then eventually when it does, you're like expecting it because you know this happened in reality as well as in the trailer, as well as, you know, in the story. And uh, so when it finally happens, the film's basically almost over and it's taken two hours or so to get to this point. So I just hated the moral high ground it had at the end. Uh, I, I don't know. It just seemed to feel like they the film was above the greed in um or, or the housing crisis greed that caused the financial crisis I, I don't know there's just something about it that i just didn't didn't like it was a bit too smug for me the film <laughs> <laughs> well at the end of it the text comes up and says that uh the genius mind of the character christian bale plays he's now investing in like water <laughs> so i was like oh god we're gonna run out of water <laughs> there's like a whole another movie to come <laughs> Uh, I also saw Whisco, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot a little while ago, and the problem with the film is there's not enough Margot Robbie for Margot Robbie Month. So, okay, sure. Um, she's really a token character within the film, and you see some really funny lines, and it's a very nice comedic performance from her. But um, she's not the focus; she's uh, she's just secondary to Tina Fey, obviously. Look, Lloyd, you've been hyping this online. You've been talking about giveaways on the podcast and this is something new we're going to do so i'm going to let you talk about it guys um i buy a lot of blu-rays as people know and i've got a lot of uh ultraviolet codes if you guys want them um so you can download the movie and if you uh, um post on any of our uh, social media whether it be facebook instagram or twitter hashtag margot robbie month i will give away the uv codes for the ultimate edition of batman vs superman so that's with the extra 40 minutes added um in in the film and by the way you can go back and listen to that podcast we did on it just a little um a footnote here that I got it from uh, Amazon America, so it might not work if you don't live in America. I personally never use the the um, digital violet, uh, sorry, the ultraviolet code, so I'm looking to give away many of these um, if, if you guys like it. But again, just um, hashtag Margot Robbie Month on any of our social media and we'll select the best one and I'll email you the ultraviolet codes for you to download Batman versus Superman. And uh, our digital, uh, our socials that you can share, hashtag Margot Robbie Month, their Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. So uh, we'll be looking on those three to pick a winner. And uh, I guess we'll announce them on the next podcast, which um, is really to be decided. I mean, we've spent all month talking about Margot Robbie, and uh, now we've got to move on and pod me if you can. I'll just say as well, we've got over 600 subscribers now on the YouTube channel, which uh, you can find a link to via our website at podmeifyoucan.com. Surely on the on the podcast, Lloyd, we'll have to keep an eye on Margot Robbie's career. So on IMDb, there's, there's three things to note that I thought we'd just quickly talk about before we finish up. Um, there's a film called Terminal, 
where she plays Annie, who's a mysterious em- employer of some hitmen. And that sounds like a kind of, uh, you know, fun, semi-dramatic romp. Sort of implies that maybe she doesn't have a huge part in that film. There's also the uh, behind-the-scenes story of A.A. Uh, a. Milne, and uh, he's the creator of Winnie the Pooh, and, you know, that's going to be a biopic, seemingly, which stars Domhnall Gleeson, uh, who was from About Time Lloyd. So that's reteaming him with Margot Robbie. They were in About Time together. She seems to be playing his wife. So I'm getting the feeling, you know, it's like a Beatrix Potter kind of Renee Zellweger kind of film. Maybe it's British because uh, Domhnall Gleeson seems to lean towards the British films. But uh, I feel like she's not going to have a big part in that either. What we can look forward to most, I suppose, is the Harlequin solo film, Lloyd. Yeah, definitely. I think that'll be really interesting to zero in more on her relationship with the Joker. Well, that's it. If you're Warner Brothers, surely at this point you're thinking, if we have a Harlequin solo film, the Joker needs to be in that film as well. And so much of his performance, of Jared Leto's performance, was lost because there are holes in that movie and Jared Leto seems to imply that as well, that uh, scenes he shot didn't make uh, Suicide Squad. So hopefully that'll be rectified if we see a Harlequin solo film. And uh, it'd be awesome if both Joker and Batman are in it, but um, Ben Affleck's pretty busy with uh, Justice League and assembling the team there. So we'll see how that goes. Of course, you can catch all of our Margot Robbie films, everything we've covered during the month, at www.podneyifyoucan.com. Send us a message, send us a tweet. Obviously, if you use hashtag Margot Robbie Month, you'll go into the draw uh, to win the Batman vs Superman digital code, as Lloyd explained. If you've got a request for a, a code, if you've seen Lloyd uh, unbox something, or if you've got something in mind, apparently you've got a lot of these, Lloyd, so people are going to be hitting us up now. You name it, I got it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we will see. Maybe we'll, we'll find a time where we give away more than one, but, like, uh, let's test the water a bit on this one. I'm, I'm keen to see uh, people come back creatively. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed Margot Robbie Month, Lloyd. It's been a pleasure to talk about it. This is fun once a year to pick an actor or actress and, um, you know, delve into their, their back catalogue of performances. Yeah, we uncover some gems and some really awful things that they probably want buried forever and no one to ever see. Yeah. <laughs> and in the past, we've, we've covered Michael Keaton. Uh, we did a Nicolas Cage uh, special as well. and um, Chuck Norris, I think. Yeah, we did a Chuck Norris special for our 50th video for sure. Uh, so, look, we'd love a suggestion, too, if you guys uh, see somebody uh, for 2017 that you think is going to need a month, you know, whether they've got a bunch of films coming out at once, and, and uh, yeah, we'll see what we can do. But uh, until next time, thanks for listening to Margot Robbie Month on Pod Me If You Can. Hit it. For listening, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod me if you can. Movie reviews, 